I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Campsite Media. Congratulations on the victory. Jack, come on over here. 3-0 and on the season. Uh, coaches always seem to find something to worry about. On the way over, we said there were the two early turnovers, maybe too many penalties, but your overall assessment of today's game. Well, we're very happy. It took us a little while to get adjusted. We made some mistakes, but uh, this is a young team that plays awful hard, and we're very happy with them. This is Coach Jack Davies, who led the 1990 Mounties to the state championship game. He's talking about his team in a post-game interview from the 1989 season. As you can tell by the interviews, these are gentlemen. These are perfect kids. Uh, they work awful hard. They like each other, which makes it a little bit more fun. We think we have a, a pretty good football team. How good we really we will find out as time goes on. This clip is quintessential Coach Davies. In postgame interviews, he never had anything bad to say about his players. He had this distinct all-shucks vibe that was unmistakable, kind of like a down-home dad next door, but with a clipped jersey accent. Coach Davies died in 2018, when he was 86, about a year before I started working on this project. I reached out to his son, John Davies, who'd been an assistant coach at Montclair under his dad. I wanted to ask him about the 1990 game, but I also wanted to ask about how it affected his father. Because player after player told me that after that game, they never saw him again, that he seemed to vanish into thin air. And even close friends of his told me he was never quite the same, that something had changed inside of him something he may have taken to his grave. But John and his mom didn't want to be interviewed. I wasn't sure why they wouldn't want to talk about it, but it made me think that season really must have had a major impact on Coach Davies, maybe in ways I couldn't have even imagined. In an email earlier this year, John did say this, To this day, I feel so badly for the players, families, fans, etc. While yes, it was exciting, it was unjust and we deserved better. Does it sound like sour grapes? Probably. But those are the facts. It was hardly a deep glimpse into Coach Davies' soul. I would have to get the rest of his story from newspaper clippings and interviews with other people who knew him. And the picture I got of his time in Montclair was complicated, especially in 1990, the year of the game. Because at that point, Montclair hadn't won a championship in seven years, an unbearable dry spell for a program accustomed to winning. Jack was never accepted, really, because he wasn't a Montclair guy. So they were dying for him to trip from Campside Media, Entertainment One, and NJ Advance Media, this is Lights Out. I'm Matt Stanmeyer, and this is Episode 3, Unfinished Business. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. A team of uh, so many moments. Maybe the last play of this game. Six seconds remain. 
When they first get to high school, kids like Dyro Patterson and Gary Sistrunk have no idea yet how big the expectations are for the Mounties or how much is at stake for the team's coach, Jack Davies. They're still riding high from their big win with the Cobras in Florida the year before. They're excited and jittery about making the team and surviving Montclair High. And honestly, as far as high schools go, it doesn't get much more picturesque than Montclair. It's a red brick building with huge arched doorways at the main entrance. There are four massive stone pillars in the front, and there's an outdoor amphitheater with a little brook that runs through it. You might recognize the school from the movie Mean Girls. But back when Dyro and Gary roamed the hallways, it's the late 1980s. So we're talking pastel windbreakers, high top fades, Timberland boots. Dyro and the boys have their own breakdance crew. And this is before iPhones and Bluetooth speakers, so someone probably lugged a massive boombox to school just so they could battle it out to fight the power. We used to dance, have a dance crew and everything like that. And like, it'll be a circle and you'll be in the middle of the circle and you'll do your freshest move and then you'll battle the person. But it'll be no violence. It'll just be who's the best dancer or performer. Life's simple. It's all about girls, parties, and football. They finally made it from the Cobras to the Mounties varsity team. They get to pick their numbers and they get to wear their blue and white varsity jackets all over town. All of a sudden, they're like famous. They start getting treated differently. Pats on the back from old timers at Ray's Luncheonette. A friendly honk of the horn walking down Grove Street. It even extended to the classroom. Dyro remembers he was failing algebra, which meant he could be academically ineligible to be on the team. And one day... His teacher pulls him aside to talk about his grades. He had a thick mustache and like, he had like a hippie hair. And I was really sucking at algebra. And he took me outside. He said, um, you know, you need to pass this class to stay on the team. And then I said, yeah. He said, well, we're going to do all we can because we need you on the team. And I was like, wow, this is serious. Teachers are looking to the left so you can play. Unlike the Cobras where any kid could walk on, playing for the Mounties had to be earned. It was so competitive, I heard some kids would fake their address just for a chance to make the team, which meant that every second on the field, practice or game time, mattered. The Mounties head coach, Jack Davies, would be watching, deciding who would get what job. God, he was the ultimate father figure. He was loud. He had a high-pitched voice. You know, kind of cartoonish in some ways. This is Matt Bellis, the team's backup quarterback, talking about Coach Davies. No, I do remember liking him. And I think everyone respected him. He was the alpha male, and uh, you don't want to piss him off, but you could. You could easily piss him off uh, if it was like a Friday before a game, and we do run-throughs, and if you miss the extra point and you're the kicker, he'd throw his uh, clipboard or his hat. No, his hat. He'd throw his hat. Davies was hired in 1984, when he was in his early 50s. Before Montclair, he'd coached for nearly two decades at Butler High School, where he'd won more than 100 games eight conference championships, and two state titles. In Butler, he's a football legend. But when he gets to Montclair, it's like a splash of cold water. By 1990, he hasn't delivered a single state championship. And the year before, they'd lost 18 to nothing in the playoffs against Morse Knowles, which Davies admitted was pretty embarrassing. The Montclair Times coined the game, the disaster in Denville. After that, Rumors started swirling that 1990 could be Davies' last season coaching. The pressure in Montclair, as you well know, is unbearable. This is unbearable. Wade Amadeo is a retired school security guard, and he was pretty much the insider of all insiders in town. He knew Davies well. 
He would pop into his office throughout the school day to shoot the shit, and he told me Davies was a nice guy. But he was always considered an outsider because he hadn't been a part of Montclair's previous coaching regime. Coach Clary Anderson led the Mounties to 17 state titles from the 40s to the 60s. Then his right-hand man, Butch Fortunato, took over. So big shoes to fill. And it was no secret that Davies wasn't meeting expectations. Wade could sense frustration building throughout Davies' coaching tenure. When you win here, it is the best. Man, when you don't, they'll nitpick every play. You could win 50 to nothing, and you'd be walking out of that field saying, we should be getting 56 to nothing. So it's, it's unforgiving. One source told me his wife started getting yelled at in the bleachers by relentless fans. They were known as the fence monglers, and they were hard to miss. The Montclair fans, the hardcore ones, could be brutal. Like, I'm 16, 17 years old, and you're yelling stuff at me, and you're a grown man. Like, really? Like, what's wrong with people, right? We're out there just trying our best. Montclair's not recruiting from all over the country. We're the, you know, the kids who go to the public school. Like, just ease it back. If fans were that cruel to a bunch of teenagers, just imagine what it was like for the coaching staff. But Davies always owned his decisions and failures gracefully. He always showed up to school the following Monday morning, and he never ducked the postgame interviews with reporters. Here's Gary Sistrunk again. Coach always taught us that we don't play for the fans because they love you when you win, but they criticize you when you lose. So we played for each other. Oh, we picked each other up when we were down. You know, we tried to keep each other out of the streets, out of problems. I mean, because even though you're in school, if you live in a bad area, you know, that's going to be around you, you know. Like most teenagers, the boys had their own challenges. One player's dad passed away, others lost grandparents, Gary's house had a bad fire, and the Sistrunks actually had to stay with a teammate's family for a while. Dyro was on thin ice after being caught with drugs. He was still barely passing his classes, but his passion for football was his only motivation to avoid failing. I wanted to, I wanted to learn so I can qualify to play, because without this game, I was, I was in a dark place. But as a team, they were solid. They had almost no weaknesses. It was empowering and motivating. The biggest game of their life was just a couple months away, and they might actually have a chance to be one of the best teams in Mountie history. The pressure was high, but I think that if we were to let anybody down, if we weren't to become number one, we felt that we failed ourselves. But the most important job, and the most coveted one, was starting quarterback. That job went to Lamont Ponton. Lamont Ponton is the quarterback. They'd like to throw 20 times a game, Jack told me, this year. Last year he threw 105 times in 10 games, so he's looking to double his attempts this year. Lamont was slight and barely six foot. He didn't talk much, but when he did, he had this deep, raspy voice that commanded the room. He was confident and always chill. His teammates and coaches told me they never saw him rattled. He reminded me of like Marlo Stanfield from The Wire, sort of mild-mannered, kind of quiet kid for the most part, serious, worked hard when he was out there and had a style to him that I would love to emulate as a quarterback. Like he never looked like he was under pressure. It was like a poise in the moment. It wasn't surprising that Lamont would end up the starter. In fact, he came from a family of star athletes. His dad, Roy Ponton, was a local softball legend. And the Ponton brothers inherited their dad's athleticism. There was Roy, the oldest, then Lamont, the middle son, and Derek, the baby. They seemed to be good at pretty much everything, especially Lamont. In every sport he played, he always seemed to be front and center. 
In Little League Baseball, he was the pitcher, and his team won the Montclair Little League World Series. In basketball, he was a guard. He could shoot, pass, and play D. And in football, naturally, he played quarterback. His teammates told me he threw the ball like a missile, but he was just as good at tucking and at running. Like his dad, people would stop in their tracks to watch Lamont when he had the ball in his hands. He would throw a ball, and it would just sort of float in there at the right spot. right? It would, he just knew how to time it. If he needed to throw it hard and crisp, he would. If he needed to run, he knew when to run. Matt was a grade below Lamont. If everything went to plan, he could take over as QB1 after Lamont graduated. So Matt watched him closely, trying to absorb as much as possible. Playing quarterback to me is one of the most cognitively demanding things I've ever done. And I have a PhD in neuropsychology, uh, but I can say like the dynamics of you got to know the play, you got to know where everyone's going, you've got to read the defense, you got to make the decision like now and uh, execute. And so Lamont was so incredibly gifted at the cognitive piece of the game. Lamont had been a no-brainer for captain. The team loved and respected him. Matt Bellis remembers the first practice of the 1990 season. Lamont and the other captains get the team together, and they make expectations clear. And they ask, like, where are our goals? What do we want to accomplish this year? And they're saying, we want to win every game. We want to win state championship. This set the tone for the team early on, and they'd been preparing for the season even before school began in the fall. Over the summer, the team would meet up regularly for captain's practices. It was voluntary, no coaches or chaperones, just players but a lot of them showed up. They could have been hanging at the pool or the beach, but instead they chose to be on the team's dusty practice field in the scorching sun. Here's Steve Bafico again. It's August or July. You should be out running around with your friends and you're doing what we used to call them gassers, you know, where you run across field, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, for conditioning is hot. And you're sweat, you must drop like 10 pounds of sweat and you're on the ground doing burpees and stuff. The smell of the dirt and the grass, you know, while the heat is like beating down on you. Those are the things that like are most vivid in my memories. The boys were gearing up for a revenge tour. They wanted payback against the few teams that beat them the previous year in 1989. There weren't many, but there were three schools in particular on their hit list. A private school, St. Joe's, had wiped the floor with them. They weren't scheduled to play them that season since St. Joe's had switched divisions, so the players begged Coach Davies for a preseason scrimmage, just for a chance to get him back. There was also Passaic, and of course Morris Knowles, the team that humiliated the Mounties in the playoffs. In a post-game interview, Coach Davies told a reporter this competitive spirit is what sets his team apart. And now we'll ask head coach Jack Davies to step in. And Jack, I like your team's attitude. They think they're good, but they've got room for improvement. They better think that way. <laughs> they're brainwashed. <laughs> they're brainwashed. The thing they have to like about these kids is that they take things personal. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a, that's a competitive fire they have within them. And they do have confidence. They do have confidence. And Lamont is a, a large part of that because he's, he's very cool and he makes a big play when we need it. The whole team was very protective of Lamont. In practice, Coach Davies even had a rule. Do not hit your quarterback, because they couldn't risk him getting hurt. One person told me that once during a muddy game, when the team was in their white uniforms, they were told that Lamont's jersey better be as clean by the end of the game as it was at the beginning. And it was. When we practiced, it was told by Davis, we don't touch him. 
on the side. You run past him, you know, we don't breathe hard on him. So, you know, he was very protected. <laughs> the first game of the season was against Bloomfield, Montclair's longtime rival, one town over. It was a Montclair superstition that if they won this game, the odds would be in their favor for the rest of the season. Ten seconds left. And Montclair opens up with a nice win. As Jack Davies uh, lets his team know that was a good win, fellas, and it was. Final score, 22 to 9. As the Mounties open up 1990 with a victory over their longtime rivals. After the game, a reporter interviews Lamont. People are expecting great things from you. How's the team handling the pressure? Well, we're not paying attention to any of that. So we're just going to come out here and play to the best of our ability. You mean you guys don't care that you're number one in the no. TV3 poll? That doesn't mean anything <laughs> to us. Week after week, the team continues to dominate. They crush Clifton, 35 nothing, Then go on the road and thump Bergen Catholic, 22-14. And they also checked off another name from their hit list, blowing out Passaic, 26 nothing. I remember listening to the, the news on NBC um, one night, and the Jets were terrible that year in 90. And the sportscaster said, the Jets are so bad, Montclair High School could probably beat them. And I was like, whoa, dude. <laughs> and suddenly, they were among the best in the country. I remember opening the USA Today and not believing, not believing, I was like, holy shit, that's, we're, we're in the USA Today. Montclair entered the National USA Today rankings at number 20 on October 30th, 1990. Being number one in the state, that was something Montclair was pretty used to. But being ranked nationally, now that was a big deal. It just felt like the, <laughs> the best season of my life. It felt like we were achieving exactly what coach wanted us to achieve. It's like running a race, you know, you start off in, in fifth place and then you move up to fourth and third and second like, okay, I want to win this race. You know, who doesn't want to be number one? Nobody wants to be number two. Nobody wants to be number three. And we were getting closer and closer to our goal. You know, so you just, we <laughs> felt incredible. Montclair finished the regular season with a perfect 9-0 record. They were so dominant, they closed the regular season with four shutouts in a row. Next up was the playoffs and a familiar opponent, Morris Knowles. The same Morris Knowles that kicked their butts by 18 points the previous season. The high school football season is down to its final weeks in New Jersey. The winner of today's game advances to the championship round next Saturday. The loser puts the equipment and the uniforms away until the 1991 season. Montclair played Morris Knowles in the semifinals last year. The Mounties lost 18 to nothing. There are some revenge motives at work for Montclair because of that. They blew out Morris Knowles by 21 points. Mission accomplished. The revenge tour was complete. The Mounties were undefeated with a perfect 10-0 record. One more win, and they would be the first Montclair team to finish undefeated since 1964. And the first Mounties team to ever go 11-0. Everything they'd ever dreamed about and worked for was coming to fruition. They're just one game away from immortality. Lamont was one of a few players interviewed after the Morris Knowles game. He's smiling into the camera with eye black still smudged on his cheeks. Here's quarterback Lamont Ponton, and Lamont, uh, 
we didn't expect a shootout affair. We were thinking maybe it'd be a little lower scoring, but that first half, it seemed every time you touched the ball, you were able to put the ball in the end zone. Yeah, well, we expected that when we came into the game because we want to revenge unfinished business this year because we, we feel that nobody can beat us, and we just we want it bad this year. We want it really bad. After the game, Gary Sistrunk remembers walking home with his teammates, feeling like they were literally floating. It felt good, like the Tony, Tony, Tony song that was currently a smash hit. I remember singing that song <laughs> on the way home from practice and just, just laughing and crying. It feels good. <laughs> you know, just laughing and smiling and cheesing, knowing that we was undefeated. But there was another team making history that day, the team the Mounties would be facing in the state championship the Randolph Rams. Late in the game, in fact, after the uh, final whistle had sounded, an announcement was made that it was Randolph, which defeated Union by a score of six to nothing. Now, we are assuming that that is accurate information. If it is, it sets up the state's all-time winningest team, 48 in a row Randolph against Montclair. And that wasn't great news for the Mounties, because the Rams were unlike any team Montclair had ever faced. They hadn't lost a football game in more than four years. Just one more win would give Randolph the state record for most consecutive games without a loss. So they were playing for immortality, too. But these Mounties had never played the Rams before. So who were they? This is a game you don't want to miss. We hope you'll watch it on TV3, but you should find your way here to Woodman. It should be a whale of a ball game. That's after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. So we've talked a lot about Montclair football, the tradition, the mystique, the unprecedented level of success. But in 1990, the Mounties met their match, literally and figuratively, in the Randolph Rams. Some of the Rams had never lost a football game, ever, not even in youth football. But what made the whole thing so special is that Randolph, New Jersey, wasn't a place that screamed athletic glory. It was a predominantly white, fairly rural community. It was known more for its woods, ponds, and lakes than anything else, so pretty much farm country. Unlike Montclair, Randolph's gym walls weren't covered by championship banners. The school was founded in the early 60s, so they didn't start winning football games until 1966. That's when the high school hired a squat, stone-faced, gravelly-voiced man named John Bauer Sr. to coach its football team. He was kind of like, you know, the godfather of the town. This is Pete Sedarius, one of Randolph's best players. He owns a diner near Randolph, and he grew up idolizing Coach Bauer. He was a little short, stocky guy. Um, he was a World War II veteran. He was a CB, so you know he was tough as nails. Um, always had a cigar in his mouth. He kind of looked and sounded like Vince Lombardi. 
you know anything about Mr. Bauer Sr. at all. He was a big personality. And this is Mike Groh. He's a coach for the New York Giants. And back in the 80s, he played for Coach Bauer as the Rams quarterback. He had white hair, uh, olive skin, very striking features, very handsome and distinguished looking gentleman. He wore the um, Peaky Blinders hat or whatever that style of hat is called. He had this raspy voice and he was just... Didn't, he didn't really have to yell, but if he, you know, he raised the octaves in his voice, you, <laughs> you knew you were in trouble. Just like in Montclair, for the Bowers, high school football wasn't just a sport. It was a way of life. The Randolph football program was a tight-knit, family-oriented operation. Even John Bower's son, John Bower Jr., was his top assistant coach. And many of his staff had been friends and confidants for decades. But while the Mounties had dozens of juniors and seniors on its roster, Randolph had fewer than 20 experienced players. And not because kids didn't want to play, but because making the team at Randolph required an insane level of sacrifice and dedication, starting with mandatory summer workouts. I'm Greek. A lot of Greeks go to Greece for the summer. We never went because I had football. And if you missed a practice, then, you know, you heard it. <laughs> right. Even in the summer. Even in the summer. Summer practice went from three in the afternoon well into the evening, rain or shine. Coach Bauer even wrote a letter to parents to apologize in advance. Pete read some of it for me. Dear parent and or guardians, the football staff wants to thank you for all your cooperation throughout, not only the past year, but the past 22 years. We are sensitive to the sacrifices you have made on your son's behalf, and we want to assure you that we are trying to develop him totally. We know that you are particularly proud that he possesses the great courage that is required to play football, and that his great accomplishments are just a reward for his labors. We sincerely apologize for the late suppers, irritating dispositions, and any general inconveniences that you have had to endure. It was torture. I mean, we would be put through a series of exercises, and I can't remember if it was three or four times a week that we would have to lift, and you had a partner, and you would go through, and everything was done on a count system. All the reps were to 10 and really to failure, and in between uh, each exercise, you would sprint to the next one, you would have your jump rope, and then you would have to jump rope with high intensity for 30 seconds. And then immediately following that, you went out to the track, and you had to sprint one, two, three, or four laps for a designated time based on wherever we were in the program. Mike remembers being paired with another player who wouldn't quit no matter how hard it got. There would be many times where we'd be running those laps and he would be throwing up on the, the way around the track and would not slow down. I mean, that's the kind of toughness that the guys in, on this team had, because it was intense, and it was unlike anything that I had ever been through at that age. Mike didn't grow up in Randolph. His dad, Al Gro, was a top college and pro football coach, so the family bounced around as Al climbed the coaching ladder. In 1988, he worked for the University of South Carolina, so Mike spent his sophomore year in Columbia. By then, he'd sprouted to 6-2, and he led his team to a state championship as quarterback. But after that season, his dad was hired as an assistant coach for the New York Giants, which meant the family was on the move, again. Mike's dad checked out several New Jersey high school football programs, trying to find the best place for him. He wanted a school that knew how to win, and preferably one that passed the ball a lot, so Mike's strong arm could be fully utilized. Randolph was an easy match. And coming from South Carolina, a hotbed for football, Mike figured he could handle anything in New Jersey, 
But he quickly realized he wasn't in South Carolina anymore. I'm a quarterback, skinny little guy who wasn't fast and knew my limitations. And I mean, I'm running with the running backs and the receivers and I'm not winning any sprints. And I get called over to the golf cart that Mr. Bauer Sr. was sitting in. Yes, Bauer used to drive around the field in his very own golf cart. And I get called over to the golf cart and he's, you know, in his voice as he's chomping on a cigar, he's hey, Futzen guy, you, you, need, you need to win. And I'm like, they're faster than me. He said, figure it out. So that was a, a really good lesson for me that, you know, if I'm going to be the guy who's going to have the ball in his hands every snap, that I need to figure out a way to, to lead from the front. And I did. The message was simple. Work. It wasn't for everybody. You know, and he always said, I only want the best. And the best of the kids are going to stick it out. And that's what Bauer always told us. Nobody's going to outwork you. Coach Bauer was known for his motivational sayings and metaphors. One he used to say was, we got to climb the hill. That one was actually quite literal. Their locker room sat on top of a hill. And after a grueling practice, climbing up there was the last thing any of them wanted to do. But Bauer would tell them to quit their whining. We got to climb the hill. That, that was really what the program was built on. And, you know, whether you're playing football in high school or, you know, you're in insurance or, you know, you're working on Wall Street or you're, you know, a professional coach, like, that goes with you for your whole life, that work ethic and those kind of values you carry with you. And in 1990, they'd be facing a new kind of hill. Randolph had previously been slotted as a Group 3 school. It's a classification based on size and enrollment. But that year, the school was moving up for the first time to Group 4 which meant they'd be playing the biggest schools with the highest enrollments. In other words, the toughest level of competition in the state, schools like Montclair. And they were up for it. We certainly did not have the advantage based on size or skill or depth, but our advantage was in our execution. The other advantage that we had is we were in superior condition. And, um, you know, it's impossible to be mentally tough if you're not in superior shape is eventually you'll give in. And, uh, you know, we had poured so much sweat and blood in the, in the summertime that it was, you're going to have to kill us to get us to quit. By the time the 1990 season began, Randolph had won 39 straight games and four consecutive state titles. Mike was a senior, and he had emerged as one of the top players in New Jersey. He was being recruited by a bunch of colleges. Most games, starters like Mike and Pete had done their jobs by halftime. They'd usually be resting up on the bench for the second half of the game. Usually. Mike remembers one tight game where that wasn't the case. Which was a shocker in and of itself. It was a home game. It was a Friday night. We're sitting in a locker room, and Mr. Bauer comes in to talk to us. Things went silent, and he goes, you're going to score four touchdowns this half. Turns around and walks away. We're all looking at like. What's this guy talking about? Coach Bauer called it. They scored exactly four touchdowns. It seemed like he was always 10 steps ahead. And then the streak became real and nobody wanted to be the team that broke the streak. Like the Mounties, the Rams had a clear mission in 1990. Don't break the streak. But there was also something else motivating them. Something more important than the state record. Everyone had known Coach Bauer was sick for a few years. He suffered from kidney failure, which often landed him in the hospital even though he never, ever missed a game. Here and there, he would maybe be late for a practice because the treatment had gone long, but for the most part, he just continued on with his work. 
business as usual. He had a sense of humor about it. People go home from dialysis. They go to bed. They don't come up here and practice. <laughs> He'd always have one-liners, and he would make comments like, you know, I'm going to be out here till I die, you know, because I don't know when the streak's going to end. Coach Bauer told people he really didn't want his son to inherit the pressure of maintaining their winning streak. He was planning to stick around and see it through. But in mid-November 1990, his health took a sudden turn for the worse, just days after Randolph had won its 46th straight game. Then, on November 14th, the unthinkable happened. Three o'clock yesterday morning, John Bowers Sr., certainly a football coaching legend in Morris County at Randolph High School, died of heart failure at the age of 67. John celebrated his 67th birthday this season, September the 26th. However, he had to spend that in a hospital bed. He had been receiving regular dialysis treatment for kidney failure since last fall, four and a half hour sessions, three days a week. His son, Bauer Jr., went to practice to share the news with the team personally. He was usually a stoic guy, but that day, there were tears in his eyes. That was a hard day. I mean, um, he meant a lot to us. He did. So, <laughs> sorry. And I was only there two years, you know. Think about the guys that grew up watching that guy, uh, you know, pace the sidelines and dreaming of playing for him. Um, he's just one of those kind of coaches that you, you hope you get a chance to play for. So I'm, I'm lucky in that regard that I got a chance to play for him. I hope he is proud of me. Their coach was gone, with the regular season finale against Livingston just two days away. Suddenly, there were questions about who would lead the team under the circumstances. It seemed like the Rams had gone from unstoppable to underdogs overnight. It was almost, you know, unfathomable. Like, where do we go from here? Then not long after, Bauer Jr. posted a quote in the locker room like his dad used to. Only eyes washed by tears see clearly. And the first time we saw it is when he died. Bauer Jr. didn't have to spell it out for them. The way forward was suddenly crystal clear. Bauer Jr. would take over as head coach, and the boys, well, they'd climb the hill. And our son was where, you know, we're playing. Business as usual, we're going to play on for Coach Bauer. But he'd want us to continue. He wouldn't want us not to play. The day that he passed, we actually practiced that afternoon. You know, we didn't stop practice. We continued on because... Hold on, I'm getting emotional a second. So, like I said, we have to carry on the mission. We have to move forward, and business as usual. We had games to win. Which brings us back to the 1990 state championship. This is a game you don't want to miss, and it should be a whale of a ball game. Next time on Lights Out. The stands were packed. We had something like 15,000 or more people that made it to this game. We're going to be the team that ends this winning streak. You know, it's going to be us. They were as advertised, uh, without a doubt. Ponton rolling outside. He's got to get around Mitchell. He throws for the end zone. Sudamar has a touchdown, Montclair. I do remember telling several guys on the team to hold their head high, that we had <laughs> given everything we had. Well, the clock runs out, but now the official on the field has motion that the time must be reset. And it was like all the air came out of the balloon. What 
in God's name just happened. <laughs> it was the most devastating thing I've ever watched. Just imagine, Matt, if someone took you to the 20th floor and then pushed you over. It was a feeling that this isn't real. This isn't happening. Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikoma is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vespoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.